Hello, you fabulous interior design professional. How are you? Welcome to Business of Design, episode 236. And we're going to talk about how to protect your business. And that means protecting your life, really, if you think about it, because how horrible would it be to find yourself in a situation where you've got to get a lawyer to take care of you? We want to avoid that. And in order to do that, of course, we're going to seek good legal advice. On this episode, we are going to seek that quality legal advice from Braden Drake. Braden is a California licensed attorney and tax professional. His tagline is awesome. Your gay best friend here to help you get your legal and tax shit legit. I like him already. Braden works primarily with small creative business owners through his courses where he educates on all the stuff you need, contracts, business entities, cash flow systems, and taxes. You can reach out to Braden by email, hello at bradendrake.com, and that's Braden with no Y. Or you can find him on Instagram at Braden Adam Drake. As interior design professionals, we have a very high earning potential. However, you can't hit that earning potential unless you're willing to take some risks. So we wanted to get Braden's advice on how we can protect our businesses, protect ourselves. And I wanted to ask him a couple of questions that have been burning a hole in my small brain, such as, why can't my contract just say, I'm not responsible for anything that happens on this job. Sign here. Thank you very much. (laughs) Why does it need to be more than that? Uh, And secondly, why do lawyers love legal ease so much? When do we need to use it? And when can we avoid it? Braden answers those questions. And he is the first attorney I've spoken to who's willing to have a deeper conversation about the conundrum we find ourselves in where we're being discouraged from hiring our own trades to work on projects and asking clients instead to hire those trades. We have a really good conversation about that. Of course, I'm happy with the conversation because it aligns with what I think is reasonable. Um, But when you hear Braden explain it, I do think it makes a lot of sense. The reality is when we get into this business, we know there's going to be some risk and we do want to protect ourselves. So it's important that you seek quality legal advice. And there are some times when legalese can be helpful to your contract, as Braden explains. One of those times is when you need to limit your liability. You'll hear Braden talk about it, but after the episode, I realized I never have looked up the word indemnify. You see that in a lot of contracts. What does it actually mean? To indemnify someone is to compensate that person for losses that they incurred or will incur related to a specific incident. So that makes sense to me. And as I said, Braden will talk about it. He also mentioned the alternative dispute resolution. I've referred to that in the past as mediation, but maybe there are other ways as well. That's an important clause, I think, to have in your contract. Why not? Why not look for a means of solving a dispute outside of the court system? That seems a lot less scary to me. In this episode, Braden talks about 
essential layers of protection, which include insurance and contracts, and perhaps another layer of protection, creating an LLC. And after that, it's really a matter of assessing your personal risk aversion, seeking qualified legal advice, and determining whether or not you need further protections. It was a really good conversation, and Braden will be back for another episode with us coming up in the next six weeks or so. Before we meet Braden and find out how to protect our businesses, let's find out what's happening at Business of Design. Take it away, Cheryl Horn. Since Kimberly is talking with Braden Drake about all things legal, I just thought I'd take this opportunity to mention that Kimberly's hourly fee and flat fee contracts are available for purchase in the BOD shop. Not only has Kimberly used them on hundreds of projects, but now they've been used by hundreds of designers using them on their projects around the world with great success. Members will save big on contracts. You'll save $300 as a member. Non-members join first. Don't just download the contracts and think you can just jump right into using them. You need to get your systems, procedures, and protocols in place first. We always recommend membership before a BOD shop purchase, like the contracts or the operations manual. You really need to get those systems in place first so that the contract is backing up how you actually run your business. With the BOD 15 and the BOD contracts, your business will be stronger and more profitable than ever. Okay, that's my plug. But along the same lines of contracts, last week we had our her latest BOD live session, our members meeting that we do monthly, and we were talking about contracts. One of our BOD members, Dane Austin, joined us and shared the visual presentation that he uses to share the 15-step process with his clients. And it was amazing. Our, you know, the rest of the members loved it. We've had amazing feedback since because the recording is available online. So if you're already a member, if you're thinking about joining, this is a great one to take a look at. It's available online. You can view it through the BOD um, member dashboard. It's available there for you. And uh, hopefully you can join us for the next BOD Live, which is coming up at the end of September. I will give you details closer to that date, but we will be talking about the operations manual. Not necessarily the systems in it that's available to you through membership already, um, but the with so many members using it in their business now, uh, we get a lot of questions about the best way to use the operations manual, how to implement it, whether you're working on your own, um, whether you've got staff, and sort of how to customize it, how to actually use an operations manual once you have that. So that's our next one, but please check out the recording from last week's BOD Live where we talked about contracts. Well worth listening into. Thanks so much. Welcome to the Business of Design podcast with Kimberly Selden. Business of Design is the world's best business training for interior design professionals like you. We have the systems, strategies, and protocols you need to consistently satisfy clients, increase profitability, and run your projects like a boss. Unlike traditional coaching, BOD is a fast track to immediate results. Don't try to do this alone. Join today and you'll have access to hundreds of targeted training modules, plus member perks like BOD Live events, member-only podcasts, preferred pricing, and the support of an engaged community of peers. We all know design matters. At Business of Design, we think designers matter too. 
Brayden, how are you? It's good to see you. Good to see you too. Brayden with no Y. I'm well, thanks. Brayden, B-R-A-D-E-N, Brayden with no Y. I love that you said that because I think that's important that we get your name right. Yeah. And I feel like as like a very visual person, the Y just like throws things off aesthetically too for my branding. Oh my God. I already love you. And it's Brayden Drake. So it's like a, it's like a soap opera star already. And you you look like a soap opera star. Well, thank you. My full name is Brayden Adam Drake. So if you're using those like line charts that they teach kids how to write on, I don't have anything that drops below the bottom line with the lettering. So that's why the Y I can't, we can't do the Y. No, that would be like a dangling chad and we won't have it. But I did notice that your initials are B-A-D. Correct. Yeah. I don't think my parents did that intentionally, but when I started my law firm, I thought about branding myself like bad law, but it was like, I don't think this really works. Mm, That's a tough spin. Okay. We want to talk because I'm super selfish. I want to talk about what interior design professionals need to know to protect themselves. And you, and you talk about layers of protection. What do you even mean by that? Yeah. So I like to teach basically everything through analogy. That's the way I teach myself when I'm learning tough material, but also I think it helps us digest these really honestly like boring topics. I don't pretend that I teach some things that are really exciting, but to me, the layers of protection, I tell people to think about layers of clothing, right? So before we hit record, you told me you split your time between Toronto and California. And I'm assuming if you're in Toronto in the winter time, you wear a lot more layers of protection than you do when you're in California, right? I do. So I tell people, when you think about your business, it's not always a one size fits all solution. So much like the weather, things are variable. It's going to be based on the industry that you're in, right? That's easy enough for your audience. We're all in the same industry, but then it might depend on your sub niche, right? If you're doing like really, really high dollar commercial contracts versus maybe like a smaller package for residential design, then you're going to need more layers of protection because you're entering into contracts with big corporations for maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars. So there are different considerations that we have to make. So we figure out how many layers of protection do you need to add on to your business? Okay. So even when I'm in LA, you know, it can drop to like 35 degrees close to the beach, right? So it can be really cold. So my question is, if I need to have layers all year round, no matter where I live, why would I not want to have the maximum protection, even if, as you said, maybe I'm just doing decorating jobs? And isn't it, a second part to that would be, isn't it more likely that I'm going to end up in a messy lawsuit if I'm working with a residential client than I am if I'm working with a commercial client, just because of the emotional nature of those relationships? Yeah, it's two fantastic questions. So on the first question, I love that you asked this one because another another layer, another layer I like to add to the analogy is I tell people to think about how risk averse are you, right? So some of us, us Californians are very cold sensitive. So that would be like a risk averse person. We need to add a lot more layers, honestly, just to help us sleep better at night. So do we necessarily need it? Maybe not. Um, the question of, well, why wouldn't you add the layers? It all comes down to cost. So I oftentimes I'll work with people who are straight out of college. They like barely have enough money to go to the grocery outlet and get their groceries. Like I'm not going to tell them that they have to pay $800 to form their LLC. It's a good idea, but you know, if we have to wait, let's get insurance first. That's your first layer of protection, insurance and contracts. Um, your second question, what was the, the, oh yeah. The second question, uh, the emotions of dealing with personal residences, people in a personal residence, um, 
Yeah, I think it's a very valid point, right? So I think you're the likelihood that you're going to have disagreements higher, but the total scope of risk you're going to have probably lower. So that's a lot more likely to be like a small claims court issue rather than like a big mediation or arbitration, which would be less likely, but more involved if you had to go there. Okay. That makes sense. Um, I've never thought to ask this of a lawyer before, but why can't I have a contract that just says, I'm not responsible for anything, no matter what sign here. And we start and I'm not responsible for anything, no matter what, and no matter what happens, you can't sue me. And Let's just work it out and sign here. Why can't my contract be that simple? That would be in violation of uh, probably a plethora of state law, <laughs> state laws. Um, but mostly we would just, there's actually this, this contract, this contract concept that they call unconscionability is the contract fair. It's a pretty, like, it's a pretty high standard contracts are not deemed unconscionable very often, but it can happen. So it, everything has to be, as the lawyers like to say, reasonable, whatever that means. Okay, here's another here's another question out of left field. Nice swear then, Braden. I'm gonna let you tell us what to do. Why do lawyers need to use legal ease? It's so frustrating when I've had lawyers look at my contract and they always want to add in legalese. And I think in the event of a dispute, that legalese is going to hurt me. It's not going to help me. I have to be able to explain my contract to the client as if they have to be able to read it at a third grade level. That's my feeling. So what's your feeling on that? Wait, no, forgive me. I shouldn't say what's your feeling. You're an expert. What does your knowledge base tell you? Yeah, it's always ideal if we can find a happy medium, right? So when it comes to, I I call like the big juicy provisions, payment terms, right? What's the deposit going to be? What intervals are they paying you in? How are you going to invoice them? Typically, those provisions do not require any legalese. In fact, the simpler you can draft it, the better. But when it comes to terms like limitation of liability and alternative dispute resolution, these are just like legally defined terms. So there's legal, there's like legal buzzwords you're going to put in the contract so that if you ever do go to court, a judge is going to say, I know what this word is. We have a whole case history of legal definitions about this. So when you're talking about, I actually call the whole end of the paragraph our legalese provisions. Those we don't want to get too creative with um, because oftentimes creativity can shoot ourselves in the foot if we have a problem. Can you give me an example of a, a short, because my brain can't handle very much, a short statement of legalese and what it means? Some, maybe what you said around liability. Yeah, liability or like an indemnification provision. So usually you're going to have a provision that says, like if, you, if you're going to have a contract with contractors or subcontractors, contractor agrees to indemnify and hold harmless, designer for, and then you have a whole laundry list of stuff, including but not limited to these things, right? And that is really just legal lingo that says if they mess up in their job and then your client sues you, they're going to reimburse you for that lawsuit. They're going to hire attorney, attorneys to defend you. They're going to reimburse you. So in that case, we're going to use those legal terms because in a court of law, we understand what indemnification means and it holds, holds a lot of legal weight. What's another way to say indemnification? That's the tricky part, right? If we had, if we had a really easy way, if we had an easy way to say it, that's what we would do. If that's a, that's a circumstance where that one sentence of legalese would take me like two or three sentences of explanation in the contract. So translating it into non-legalese 
wouldn't wouldn't be worth the risk involved in doing so. But what if my client signs that and then there's an issue and my client says, I didn't know what indemnify meant. I just signed it. Am I not likely to have a judge say or arbitration person or a mediator say, yeah, I could see how the client wouldn't understand that. Let's just strike that out. No, the only the only time that would really be a problem is if you force them to sign it under duress, which in your circumstance, it would be hard to picture that. But this hap- like this happens, right? Especially when you have people who don't have capacity to enter contract. Right. Um, but the the judge would say, you know, you didn't force your client to sign this like in a sit down meeting. They had the opportunity to take it to an attorney if they really wanted it interpreted. They signed away their rights, right? Okay. Um, like none of us could get Apple's terms of th- service thrown out because we didn't fully understand them, right? It's I like, have counted you know, on that my whole life. That is, is very bad news. I just like agree. I'm like whatever. Nobody thinks. I've read this thing. So it it sounds like it's a bad idea for me to lock all the doors in the house and tell them they can't leave until they sign the contract. Like I should just stop doing that. Yeah. Don't do that anymore. We'll scratch that off your, off your processes. Okay. So I'm a brand new designer. Let's say I'm just starting out. You mentioned that you might give that person a different advice than you would give somebody who's been doing it a long time and has a lot of clients. What, where would you say they need to start in order to create those layers of protection? The first two, so what I call the essential layers are insurance and contracts. So you have to have a contract for every client. You have a contract with every contractor. It's very, very important, especially for us in here in California with AB5. I'm sure you've probably heard of it. We could talk about it if you want. So AB5... Yeah. AB5 is a contractor law that was written into action last year. And without going into tons and tons of details, I've recorded like two hour long podcast on this, just this one topic. It is a law that essentially tells us that you can't hire anyone that provides your same core service as you as a contractor. So designers can't hire other designers as contractors unless they have a carve out or an exception in the law. And oftentimes those carve-outs include having valid independent contractor agreements among a whole host of other things. So we have to have our contracts and then professional liability insurance is a must as well. LLCs, formal business entities are our third layer. And I do recommend those for pretty much everyone. If it's too costly starting out, then we can talk about it. Well, it, yeah, I would say it would be really risky to to go into this particular business without at least having those three things you mentioned. I would be terrified yes. to do that because you know what happens? You get started and you're rolling along and you're not paying attention. You're like, you meant to set up an LLC, but you just didn't do it yet. And then something goes terribly wrong. Correct. I have a question for you, um, Braden, and I'm not sure if this uh, will even make it into the podcast because you might say, I have no idea. But one of the dilemmas the interior design professional is running into, certainly in California, definitely in Toronto, and it's it's becoming more and more widespread, is this. I can work with Mrs. Smith. I can be her interior design professional. But if I bring a contractor who I know and trust and have worked with for 25 years to her job site, legally, many places are now saying, I cannot hire that contractor on behalf of Mrs. Smith. The insurance people, the insurance advisors to our profession will say, you don't want to be the person who hires a contractor. You want Mrs. Smith to hire the contractor because that absolves you of responsibility, which I don't think is true at all. 
Because you're the person that introduced the client to the contractor, right? So no matter what goes wrong, ultimately the finger will get pointed at you as like, she told me to hire that person. So what the heck are we going to do? Like, why would it make sense that Mrs. Smith, who has never done a renovation in her whole life, could go out and hire anybody she wants out of the yellow pages and take a risk, but I can't bring a contractor I've worked with on 42 projects on board knowing that that person is going to be trustworthy and have integrity and do a great job. So we have, we really have two different legal issues here. So we have the independent contractor law issue, which is where I first thought you were going with this. Can this contractor work for me without being deemed an employee? I don't think that was your actual question, but we can talk about it. The second issue is just the liability aspect. So who's liable if contractor messes up in their job with Mrs. Smith? So that's the question I'm assuming, like the route we, I'm assuming we're going down. Well, yes, but I, and the, uh, yes, and I am willing to be liable because I have found in the past when I hire the contractor, we're all on the same page. I have control of the project. There's more checks and balances. I have so much less risk as the designer when I hire the contractor. If I'm on a job and Mrs. Smith hires some contractor I don't know, Every single thing that goes wrong is going to be attributed to me, and it's really hard to cover yourself in that situation. Yeah. So the the reality here's the actual reality, right? This is what's going to happen. If something really, really bad happens at Mrs. Smith's house, and Mrs. Smith is angry about this, and Mrs. Smith goes to hire an attorney, Mrs. Smith is probably going to sue everyone that's yes. involved. Yes. Thank yeah. you. Yes, that's what I. Yeah. Keep regardless saying. of what happens. Yeah, regardless of what happens, you're all going to be co-defendants. But the the other reality is that if Mrs. Smith hired that contractor directly, it would probably be easier for you to get yourself out of this legal predicament because you're going to say, this is very, very clear negligence on their part. You hired them. I did not hire them. I'm not their employer. Although I wasn't responsible for this. It's going to be easier for you to get out of it. I think what you're also arguing, though, is... If I hire them directly, it's going to be less likely that we're going to ever going to have that problem to begin exactly. with, which is the counter argument. Because you you've yes. got a, tr- a level of trust, and you know they're not they're not crooked. I mean, I've been on plenty of projects where the contractors were doing something fraudulent, and I'm like, I don't want to be involved in any of that, right? And if you have a contractor who's made a hundred percent of your clients happy up to this point. Why would I not want that contractor on the next job? Yeah. And in that case, I think some attorneys would tell you that maybe in your contract, you tell your clients, I will only work with people on my preferred vendors list. I don't know if you use that term in the design industry, but my wedding professional friends do a lot. (laughs) Yes. But in many states, I think you're not in compliance with federal or local laws. That's the trouble. It's like it's like the laws say it's okay for Mrs. Smith to take a chance, but you can't bring in someone you know, even if you're willing to be responsible. And so our only alternative in many states, most states now, and in most provinces in Canada, is to become a licensed 
contractor. Like I would have to mm-hmm. become a licensed contractor. And in some places, that's really easy. You take, you write a check and you take a quiz. And in other places, like in Toronto, it's now like a two or three year apprenticeship working for another contractor. So I'm like, I, I'm not doing that. Yeah. I actually have a family friend in San Diego who has done that. Like she's the designer. Her husband is a licensed contractor. So it's a big selling point for their design firm. Um, but it's an interesting point. Ultimately, there are a lot of things that you have to weigh and consider. If you're going to hire the contractors directly, I would say, I actually would tell you, I think that's fine. As long as you know that you are taking on a little bit more risk if you end up having a legal dispute, right? So it's all just about like knowledge and awareness. I always, I always tell people that our jobs as attorneys is often just to educate people on what risk they're opening themselves up to. And then you are the CEO of your business. You're going to make the decision. I love that we're having this conversation. And I honestly, I will tell you, Braden, you're the first attorney who's ever had it. this, has even entered, has weighed in like this. Most just say, no, it's not, it's not compliant. Can't do it. Just let the client hire the contractor. And I've tried, right? I've tried that so many times. And in the end, it's nothing but headaches. The project never goes the way I want it to. The client's never as happy. And so even if I'm not compliant (laughs) with the law, and I hope the feds aren't listening in right now, I'm just, this is all lies. Don't listen to me. I'm, I'm out of my mind. Even if I'm not compliant with the law, I, I'm so positive and I'm not going to get sued in a way working with trades I've known forever and we're, you know, we've, we're on so many jobs together. Yeah. And I do, of course, want to give, you know, attorneys are full of caveats. So I want to give one caveat here is we're not saying that the difference I think here is there, is there a compliance issue with telling your client, you have to use my contractors? That is a question that I cannot answer right now. But if you're telling your clients, I'm willing to hire the contractors for you, this is going to make it easier. And then you work with your trusted contractors. I don't see why that should be a problem. Right. Okay. Also, I should have given all my legal disclaimers at the beginning. This is not personal advice, legal advice, all that stuff. <laughs> please, please feel free to do that. If some amazing designer who's listening wants to reach out to you for legal advice, can they do that? Yeah, it just it depends on the specific question. Um, I primarily run an education business now, though, so I have I have eight different online courses and group programs that I run. Um, I do very very limited one on one work, but I always tell people, you know, reach out to me and I'll let you know what I have going on. So. Like next week, I have a, a a group of ten people that are going through. Can I swear on your podcast? Am I allowed? Go for it. Okay, so yeah, next week I'm running a one week round of my mini course called "Unfuck Your Hiring," and it walks people step by step through how to hire contractors. So that's most of what I'm doing now. I'm an occasional one on one consultation. When you say to hire a contractor, do you mean a guy with a hammer and a plumber that tags along with him, or do you mean an independent contractor, as in anybody who works for you who's not an employee? Great follow-up question. The latter, yeah, the latter of those things. So typically it's, you know, someone who you're going to have come in your business that you're not hiring as an employee just yet. And whether you legally can do that under new, under the new laws. Got it. Okay. Thank you. This was, this was really, really helpful. 
it's amazing to work with professionals who are not so locked into the way things used to be. And I mean, part of that is your age, you know, you're, you're a young guy. Um, but just part of it is being open-minded and thinking, you know, the law changes all the time. Let's make it work on your behalf. And so uh, it's nice that you, you give trust to the people uh, who are listening. I'm sure a lot of people are going to check out your website and want to um, get to know you a little bit better. So thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great chat. Anytime we get to talk about legal stuff, I'm there. All right. And we like to end every episode with design intervention. Just a great piece of advice for the interior design professionals you may know in terms of their business. Yes. Well, I think the best advice I ever got was, Braden, raise your prices. So I'm going to encourage everyone to take a good, hard look at whether they are charging according to their skill level, expertise, and value. It's something that I talk about a lot when we educate on contracts. It's funny that I end up getting into like pricing coaching with like contract clients, but you know, we've got to draft the payment terms. So are you being compensated correctly is a big question. You just can't say it enough. What happened when you did raise your fee? I, 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 I'm assuming that um, all your clients quit and you were bankrupt in weeks. <laughs> It was, um, I think my, my conversion rates went down slightly, but I think what ended up happening was I was working with about three fourths of the amount of clients I was working with, but I was making about twice as much money per client. So I was actually working less, making more money. And then that gave me more time to start building my education business actually. This sounds really good. I hope if you've been sitting on the fence for a while and you've been afraid to raise your rates, you're going to take it from Braden that now is the time to do it. Braden, thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for being part of the Business of Design community and supporting BOD's mission to improve the industry one design business at a time. It's time for you to take the next step and join Business of Design. Like thousands of design professionals in 50 countries around the world, you'll find the systems, strategies, and protocols you need to dramatically improve your business and transform your life. What are you waiting for? Start today. 